That's the Luke reading in chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel. If you want to follow it, if you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1061. We just sang this hope. You notice the word hope. This hope will never fail. Heaven is our home. So let me pray. Lord, speak to us again this morning of the Easter hope, the hope of heaven, and tell us something of what that means for us in this life as well as the next. Amen. Two couples are chatting in the pub. The conversation dries up a bit, so John jump-starts it back into life. Okay, he says, the day comes when they put you in your casket. The family's gathered around. What would you like them to say about you? Gillian says, well, I'd like them to say Gillian was one of the finest GPs in the country. She cured thousands of patients. George says, I'd like people to say George was just the best father anyone could hope for. He was fun, generous, wise. He was always there for us. And Jane says, I'd like them to say, look, she's moving. (laughs) We're no more comfortable with death than ever. But we've had this word, hope, up all of this year. Now, of course, you can be optimistic about all sorts of things in life. You can be hopeful about getting a job or finding a marriage partner or starting a family or making money or getting promotion or saving for a pension or living healthily to old age or being remembered for a time or leaving some legacy worthwhile behind you. You can cherish a hope for all sorts of things in this life. But this hope capital H-O-P-E, the Christian hope, is a bigger one than all of those. It's a hope of life after death. It's a hope of eternal happiness. Hello, you come to help me? Probably belongs to someone somewhere. It's a bit like the angels sitting down on the tombstone, isn't it? This hope is much more. It's the hope of God's presence with us and us with him forever. It's the hope of forgiveness for our sins. It's the hope of reunion with those we've lost. It's the hope of a new creation. It's the hope of heaven. It's the only hope in the end that really matters. Now, that's the hope that the two disciples on the Emmaus Road had had and temporarily lost. If you're looking at it, it's in verse 21. We had, notice the tense, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But in the face of Jesus' death, they lost hope. And so, do you see, there's no, there's no hope that is this kind of hope. 
There's no hope without an answer to death. As I said, our generation is no more at peace with the prospect of dying and bereavement than any before it. World literature is at one in its horror of death. How it terminates the contribution of every one of us. How it guillotines our relationships. How it hemorrhages the meaning of our existence. And without an answer in the face of this, there's no ultimate hope, only limited, narrow, temporary, partial hopes for this life. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a theologian whose son died in a climbing accident. He wrote the book after his son's death, Lament for a Son. And he wrote this. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Some people are gifted with words of wisdom. For such, one is profoundly grateful. There were many such for us. But not all are gifted in that way. Some blurted out strange, inept things. That's okay, too. Your words don't have to be wise. The heart that speaks is heard more than the words spoken. And if you can't think of anything at all to say, just say, I can't think of anything to say. But I want you to know that we're with you in your grief. Or even, just embrace. But please don't say, it's not really so bad. Because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think that your task as comforter is to tell me that really all things considered it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief. But place yourself off in the distance, away from me. And he summarized these words. I know people do sometimes think things are more awful than they really are. Such people need to be corrected gently, eventually. But no one thinks death is more awful than it is. It's those who think it's not so bad who need correcting. You see, the Bible sees death as an enemy, not a friend. It is the ultimate enemy. God never says in the Bible, let there be death. It has no positive place in his purposes. It does not belong in his world. Death in the Bible is that which God assaults. Death is enemy. And so, again, I suggest to you this Easter day, there's no real copper-bottomed, eternally rust-proof, corrosion-resistant hope in the end unless it has an answer in the face of death. So question, where is there an answer to death? Where is there an answer? In the 1400s, all the capitals of Europe were buzzing with speculation. Was there a way to the rich land of spices and perfume and silk around the southern tip of Africa? Was there a sea route to India? Many believed there was. Nobody knew for sure. 
All attempts at rounding the Cape had failed, so much so that the treacherous headland was called the Cape of Storms. Thousands were shipwrecked there. But in 1488, Bartholomew Diaz rounded the Cape for the first time. And ten years later, Vasco da Gama, that's Vasco da Gama, was the first to reach India and return to Lisbon. It was renamed the Cape of Good Hope. And ever since, it's been impossible to doubt that a way to the east exists round the bottom of Africa. Now, death was like that Cape of Storms, littered with wrecks. There was only speculation to go on about any afterlife. No one had gone through and come back to tell us. Except, Jesus died and rose again. You know, the historical evidence is very impressive. The disappearance of his body, which no one could produce. His reappearances for 40 days to different groups of people in different times and places. The appearance of the early church, which turned the world around and upside down. And the experience of Christians down the ages, including billions today. Jesus is the only person in the whole of history for whom there is such a claim with such good evidence to back it up. So for my money at least, there's no better answer to death. None that I know of than belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Frankly, it's either Jesus or nothing. Jesus successfully rounded the Cape and returned. And so now we know his resurrection has turned it into the Cape of Good Hope. He has opened up for us a way to a new land. He has proved its existence. And because he has successfully navigated that cape, he's perfectly qualified to be our captain. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's hostility to death. The resurrection of Jesus shows that death is not as one undertaker's brochure says, the final step of the master's plan to bring us safely home. It's not kind and gentle death, despite what the hymn says. It is that which God opposes. It is enemy. But it is now a defeated enemy. Jesus undid death. Jesus is victorious. Which raises one further question. How do I get that belief in the resurrection? In the story on the Emmaus Road, there were four stages in the awakening of the two disciples' faith. First, just think of the story, they opened their door to him. 
It's in verse 29. They urged him strongly, stay with us. Second, they opened their eyes to him. It's in verse 31. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Thirdly, they opened their hearts to him. Verse 32, they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And fourth, they opened their mouths to tell of him. Verse 34, it is true. And then the account says the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them. Uh, In particular, they talked about Jesus breaking bread, which we are about to celebrate ourselves. This symbol of his death on the cross. And that was the key to their faith. This event in the final chapter is in fact one of three encounters in Luke's resurrection story. The chapter about the resurrection. In the first, the women went to the tomb and encountered two men, presumably angels. And the angels gently rebuked them. It's in verse 5. They said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Don't you remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Don't you remember that? If you'd understood the necessity of his death, you would have belief in the resurrection. That was in the first story. Then the second one the encounter on the Emmaus Road. And again, Jesus rebukes the two disciples. In verse 25, he says, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Again, do you see the necessity of the cross? If you'd understood that I had to die, you'd have no problem believing that I'm alive again. And then the third story, the third encounter with the 11 disciples back in Jerusalem, maybe still in that upper room. And Jesus again gently rebukes them. Verse 38, he says, why are you so troubled? Why do doubts arise in your mind? And verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. You see the tone of that? Why didn't you listen? Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. And again, verse 46, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness will be preached in his name to all nations. Now, do you see three stories, three events, three times, three rebuking explanations of the necessity of his death? So that quite unexpectedly, the final chapter of Luke's gospel, his chapter on the resurrection, turns out to be an explanation not of his resurrection, 
but of his death. Whose purpose Jesus explains in verse 47, very simply, it is for the forgiveness of sins. That's what you've got to get your minds wrapped around. And so I dare to say there's no belief in the resurrection without an understanding of his death. It's for the forgiveness of sins. You've got to understand his death, then you'll understand his risen life. You have to come to the cross, then you can come to his risen life. Know why he died, then you can know his risen power. Understand his sacrifice, then you'll experience his victory. So to sum up, this I think is what we've seen first. There's no ultimate hope, there's no capital H-O-P-E without an answer to death. It stands to reason, doesn't it? As soon as you think seriously about it. And Easter has the answer. This is what we can offer those who grieve. We can refuse to downplay death. We can affirm the, the should not be-ness of death and bereavement. And we can face the full horror of it with other people because we know that death is not just enemy but a defeated enemy. And secondly, we've seen that the defeat of death is uniquely among all the philosophies, all the religions, all the isms and all the ologies of the world. It is uniquely grounded on the reliable foundation of the risen Christ. There's no firmer foundation. And the knowledge of death's defeat is transformative. It doesn't take away the pain, but the pain, though terrible, can be temporary. And death, although it's a hiatus in our relationships, need not be the end. The resurrection of Jesus sets the implacable, victorious hostility of God over against the enemy of death. The enemy that otherwise makes a mockery of our relationships, our lives, and all our earthly hopes. And finally, we've seen that the key to knowing Christ risen is through repentance and forgiveness. You make application to the crucified Christ. Christ crucified for you. And then you will know Christ risen in you. Like the two on the Emmaus Road, you open the door of your life to him. You say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Stay, I beg you, stay with me. You open your eyes to him, get hold of a copy of the Gospels and read about it. You open your heart to him in repentance and trust. You say, Lord, I'll stake everything. I'll stake my life. I'll stake my eternity. I'll stake my future on you and your cross.
And you open your mouth to pass on this message because there are no secret disciples, at least not in this country, where there is such freedom to tell. So let's do that now, at least by telling him and one another as we sing together. Let's praise God together. Do stand. <laughs>